The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. Well, just when you're thinking about being a scripture reader at church, right? You're reminded of all those names. You're reconsidering, aren't you? Hey, are you aware of uh, Gloria Marie James? Gloria's mother died of a sudden heart attack when she was just 19, which was obviously tragic and sad. But it was also really practically difficult because her mom had been helping her raise her son. Records indicate that Gloria had to move about 19 different times in her life. She struggled financially and eventually thought it was probably going to be best to let her son move in with Frank Walker and his stable family. Who's Frank Walker? Why would you know that guy either, right? Frank Walker was the Southside Rangers youth football coach. Gloria's son and his son were teammates. The Walker's house helped Gloria's son just stabilize. Frank Walker, although he was a football coach, was the guy who introduced Gloria's son to the basketball court because Gloria is LeBron James's mother. Frank Walker, although his football coach, became the guy who introduced him to basketball, and also became a stand-in dad. So when it comes to LeBron James, both Gloria and Frank Walker matter. That story is going to make sense to you in a moment. Good morning. My name is Dusty White. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, fortunately for me and my family, we always have a white Christmas. Yeah, that's bad, isn't it? That was bad. I'm going to hear about that at lunch from my kids, actually. They're going to be like, that's not funny, Dad. But you know what? I'm north of 40, so I get to use all the bad dad jokes that I want. Uh, We're taking a a break just for two weeks, this week and next week, from our Gospel of John series to uh, consider a few things that the Scriptures call our attention to other than uh, the Gospel of John, like the beautiful mystery of God coming to us in the form of a baby in a lonely, a lowly manger. Uh, On this day after Christmas, it's easy for us to start thinking about next year. New year, new ideas, the familiarity of Christmas is kind of come and gone, or maybe you're finding yourself in the fog of Christmas realities. I mean, your presents, though, are 24 hours old, just so you know. So we've got to start moving forward, right? I'm kidding. But friends... The manger story is anything but routine or dull. In fact, the incarnation of Jesus Christ has hopeful implications for everyone. Incarnation is a fancy word that just simply means God came to be with us. And today I want to consider three implications of the incarnation. First of all, the incarnation means that every person matters. Secondly, the incarnation means that your shame can be covered. And third, the incarnation means that your physical presence matters. So first of all, the incarnation means that every person matters. Just like Gloria and Frank Walker matter when it comes to basketball stars like LeBron James, 
The gospel according to Matthew opens with Jesus' family tree. Uh, Some of y'all are about to start your Bible uh, in a year reading plan. And when you get behind, it's going to be tempting. I I know this from experience. It's going to be tempting to just skip the names, the genealogies. You're like, oh, a genealogy. I can kind of move past this. Uh, That's an uninteresting section at times. But Matthew, along with the gospel writer Luke, wants us to know that Jesus was a real man from a real family. One of the most astonishing things about God is that he came to us as a man from a real family, just like you did. Uh, You don't have to think about this all the time, but just for a second, I mean, think about your grandparents, think about your great-grandparents, and then think about your great-great-grandparents. Without any of them, you would not be here, right? I mean, you know that. That's not rocket science. Uh, just yesterday, we were uh, at my grandmother's house, and uh, there's uh, in her basement right now, she's going through family photos, and so uh, we were able to find this uh, five-generation picture. I'm 29 months old, and uh, I was going to bring it and put it on the screen for you, but my grandma said, hey, you're not doing that. And I said, hey, you're the boss. But it, it's a pretty cool photo. It's my great-great-grandmother, my great-grandma, my grandma, my father, and then me. It's pretty cool to have a five-generation picture. And without your grandparents, you wouldn't be here either, right? And Matthew, who's primarily writing for a Jewish audience, began Jesus' line of descent with Abraham. Not only does Matthew know that Abraham is an important figure to them, the Jews never saw genealogies as insignificant. So this family tree grabs their attention. To be fully God and to be fully man, Jesus had to be born into a real family. And and Matthew knows that that's important for his readers. This list of names is not a bunch of items. It's not a bunch of facts. These were persons through whom, by the grace of God, Christ the Lord would come to earth. So make no mistake, Matthew is concerned less with chronology and more concerned with Christology. Here's what I mean. In Matthew's day, Christ's enemies were constantly arguing about Jesus' origin. How could he be the Savior if he had such a lowly birth? Matthew, in these beginning verses, Matthew 1 through 17, aims to show us that Jesus, according to his human nature, is indeed the legitimate seed of David, which fulfills prophecy that we read about in Isaiah. So from Joseph, his legal father, and from Joseph's ancestors, David, he receives the right to David's throne. He can be the king. And we know that Matthew's concerned with Christology over chronology because not everybody gets mentioned. Matthew's satisfied to show us that Christ is indeed from David's line. He doesn't mention every name. He doesn't get us to every single link in the chain. He's satisfied to get to the point, and the point is this. Christ is indeed from David's family. In this genealogy in Matthew 1, God is saying, here I am. The way that God comes to us in a horse trough, born to real parents, is real earthy. Have you thought about that over the last couple of weeks? It's a real earthy story. 
Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus, at one point in his life, was like 12 years old? Or that he was a teenager? 13, 14 years old at one point? Listen to Sam Albury on the incarnation. He says this. Jesus had to become flesh. To become a human person, he needed to become a human body. To truly become human, Jesus needed to become a fetus in a womb, a baby in a cot, a toddler stumbling about as he learned to walk, a teenager going through puberty, a fully grown man. It wasn't enough to have a body. He needed to truly be one. Jesus' incarnation is the highest compliment the human body has ever been paid. God not only thought our bodies up and enjoyed putting several billion of them together, he made one for himself. He became what he valued enough to redeem. He couldn't come for people without coming for their flesh and without coming as flesh. So friends, the incarnation means that every person matters. Uh, I don't know about you. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we're getting more and more efficient and more and more utilitarian as the days go by. Uh, I've been convicted about this lately. Uh, I used to do, about a year and a half to two years ago, I used to do this really old-fashioned thing where I would go to a coffee shop, interact with a barista, and order a coffee, wait for the coffee, and then they would give it to me. Now what I do is I sit in my driveway, I can order on the app, I can listen to a podcast or the news or something, I can drive to the place, I can walk in, find my name on the cup, and walk out without ever interacting with a human. I've been convicted about this lately because actually a person got that coffee ready, right? So we're getting more and more efficient, we're getting more and more utilitarian, and uh, that's convicting to me. Uh, as a Christian, we have to see people. We can't be overlooking one another. Who do you tend to overlook? Who do you notice but not see? This genealogy in Matthew's gospel reminds us of the importance of every single person. It's so easy for us to just drift through life missing people. It's also easy for us to drift towards the people that we enjoy the most. But if the incarnation means that every person matters, then every person matters. I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting to you this morning that you have to become friends with everybody. I'm just saying that a gospel-saturated life recognizes every image bearer and recognizes that every person matters. So how about for you? How about at work? Do you work with people that help you get your work done, but that you don't really like or that you don't really want to see? or notice? Or do people work for you? Do you treat employees as employees or as persons? When it comes to the incarnation, when it comes to every person mattering to God, there is no better than or less than in the kingdom. Secondly, the incarnation means that your shame can be covered. Mary's in a pretty complex situation. She's still a virgin. She's not yet married in the full sense of the term. 
she knows immediately that the cause of her pregnancy is powerful, life-giving operation of the Holy Spirit. There's no other way that this could have happened. She knew this physically because she had not been with Joseph. He had not made her pregnant, but she also knew it spiritually because this angel Gabriel had shown up and told her that this was going to happen. That's in Luke. To add to the complexity, she was betrothed to Joseph. Now, being betrothed was kind of like being engaged to be married, but far more serious. There's a solemn promising towards marriage, and sometimes in our day, people can break off engagements, and it hurts relationally and emotionally, but life seems to go on. Maybe you know somebody like that. Maybe you've been in that particular situation, but according to the Old Testament, regulations, unfaithfulness, for a betrothed woman is punishable by death. We can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 22. So imagine the complexity that Mary is in here. Joseph is naturally, she's pregnant. So naturally, he's going to become aware of her condition. He draws some natural conclusions. I mean, how could she not have broken her solemn vow towards him in marriage? He's a righteous man. He's a man of character So this is his approach. Look at Matthew 1, verses 18 and 19 say this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, that's an important phrase for us this morning, resolved to divorce her quietly. Before they came together and unwilling to put her to shame, he was going to divorce her quietly. He had, he had to have been agonizing over this decision. I mean, he's betrothed to this woman to be married. She seems to be pregnant. This has got to be difficult. According to the custom, two options are usually available to a guy in this predicament. One, Joseph can institute a lawsuit against Mary and go public. Now, keep in mind, going public is where shame lives. Shame is always out there. Shame is always in the public square. Or two, he can hand her a bill of divorcement, which dismisses her quietly, doesn't have to involve her in legal procedures. Now, remember, he's not just breaking off an engagement. This is a legal type of engagement with a binding, so something has to be done for the both of them to proceed. If he goes the public route, she'll live with disgrace and scorn, plus she's gonna have a baby to take care of. Since he's a man of character and principle, he decides to take the high road, but then he falls asleep. Because just like any guy worth his sweat, making big decisions, he needs a nap. I mean, he needs a dad nap. I mean, that's what's happening right here. The guy needs a nap. Look at verses 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. For Joseph, this dream had to be both startling and comforting at the same time. 
startling because he had just had a vivid dream. Some of us have had vivid dreams before, so you know what I'm saying. He had a vivid dream telling him how to proceed with Mary and to not be afraid to take her as his wife. It also had to be comforting because it was a divine answer in a moment of need. Look at verses 23 through 25. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then in your Bible, there's this parenthesis phrase that says, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Friends, I know that this sounds familiar, but this is magnificent. In a divine way, God directs Joseph through a nap and an angel to cover Mary's shame by taking her in as his wife. And catch this, just as God directs Joseph to take Mary, the child born to Mary has come to cover our shame. Let me say that again. I know it's the day after Christmas. You ready? Just as God directs Joseph to take Mary, the child born to Mary has come to cover our shame. Do you see it? What Joseph does here is what Jesus will do. Do you remember the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4? Have you ever thought about how similar the story of Jesus with the woman at the well is like the story of Joseph and Mary? Jesus is passing through Samaria and he encounters a woman who carries some shame from her past. He reads her resume back to her, not as a way of shaming her, but as a way of interacting with her in a dignifying and honoring way. She probably had not been honored at all or dignified at all. And what Jesus is doing there in John chapter 4 is kind of like what his dad did before. We pick up the story in John chapter 4, just a couple of verses here. Jesus is interacting with the Samaritan woman. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, when we recall, when we feel our shame, we do a number of things. We tense up, we hide, we dodge, we get defensive. But when Jesus knocks on the door of a dark and shameful place, he does it like a gentleman. He doesn't reject us. He does not expose you. Rather, he offers to take your shame away. Just one passage on this, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. This is a charge to us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Jesus comes to us beautifully with a dad that honors his mom. He lives a life obedient to the will of God. He goes to the cross with ultimate dishonor. And Hebrews says he despises the shame. The incarnation, friends, takes us all the way to the crucifixion where the Savior takes your shame. If you have never experienced the Savior taking your shame, if you have never experienced the liberating grace of God in your life, and you're wondering, why am I even here today? You're here today because God wants you to understand and know a life free from shame. He wants to meet you right where you're at and remove your shame and replace it with honor. So hear the Christmas story afresh this morning. Christ comes to cover your shame. He wants you to be liberated. He wants to honor you. Don't not accept that beautiful gift. Don't leave that unwrapped. Open it up and you can walk out of here today with honor and dignity in the Lord. It's remarkable, isn't it? That God, who could have done it any way he wanted, by the way, comes to us in this beautiful narrative of the incarnation. And as he does, he's eliminating shame as Jesus, as he comes into the world to be with us. It's, it's remarkable. Friends, the incarnation of the gospel covers your shame. And that also means that you can help people experience the covering of shame as well. How does God want to use you to bring dignity and honor to others? Who has he put in your path? Who does he want you to minister to when it comes to helping people not just understand the truth of the gospel, but experience it and walk in it? The glorious gospel squashes shame when we help people put on the garments of dignity and honor. The incarnation means that your shame can be covered. Third, the incarnation means that your physical presence matters. Verse 23, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, at this point in the narrative, Joseph wakes up. He receives the assurance that he needs that this child conceived in Mary's womb is indeed the savior of the world. In Emmanuel, God has come to dwell with his people. He's come to dwell with us. That means that God has a high value on showing up. We see this in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus shows up, and he does all sorts of stuff. The sick experience healing in Matthew 4. Demon-possessed people are liberated. That's also in Matthew 4. The poor in spirit are blessed. The lepers get cleansed. The hungry get fed. That's Matthew 14. I could keep going. Here's the point. Emmanuel is infinitely rich, but he came to be with the poor. He assumed a body. He entered into our sin-polluted atmosphere without being sinful at all. He takes on our guilt. He takes on our shame. He bore our grief. He carries our sorrows. He's wounded for your transgressions. 
He's bruised for your iniquities. And then he goes to heaven to prepare a place for you. He sends his spirit into your heart. He governs the entire universe. He promises to come again to take you up to be with himself. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. And friends, this is unlike any other religion. Christianity affirms humanity. God shows up. So, the incarnation means that our physical presence matters. God showed up, so must we. If God showed up, the implication for us is that we have to show up. Listen to Sam Alberry again on this. There is no substitute for physical presence. Nothing else can do what physical presence does. Physical presence matters because we are physical people. We're not meant to be everywhere at once. Being present is a vital part of what it means to be human. When we are actually with people, even people we don't know well, we naturally and quickly develop the ability to empathize with them. We can see their facial expressions and pick up on their body language. Presence matters. The incarnation gives shape to our humanity and to our Christian ministry. When somebody gets married, you show up. When somebody passes a big milestone in their life or maybe a big birthday to celebrate, you show up. When a loved one is sick or when a loved one is dying, you rush to the hospital, you show up. We commit to being in community and then we show up. When somebody in your community is in need, you show up, you pay the bill, you change the tire, you bring the meal, we show up. We commit week after week to being in here, to being together, to show up for our good and for God's glory because we worship a God who showed up. Have you noticed um, with this pandemic and with technological advancements that we increasingly are finding ourselves swimming in a culture that doesn't know how to show up. While culture seeks to dehumanize everything, Christians have a profound opportunity. It used to be simple, but now it's profound. It's just called showing up. It's pretty simple. This is something that I'm pastorally burdened for. The incarnation means that your physical presence matters. As we wrap up our time uh, here today, I'm wondering, have you heard about the metaverse? That was a lot of size, so apparently. The metaverse is a whole new land, if you're unaware, that's rolling in. It's coming. I'm not saying that to be an alarmist. I'm just kind of tongue-in-cheek making fun of it a little bit. Matthew Ball, who's heavily invested and is buying up real estate in the metaverse, says it like this. It's a massively scaled and interoperable network of real-time rendered 3D virtual worlds, which can be experienced synchronously and persistently by an effectively unlimited number of users. Ian Harbour, Patrick Miller wrote on this in a November article, they go on to say this. The metaverse is not a digital world. It's a digital world of worlds through which people can travel seamlessly retaining their appearance and digital possessions wherever they go. Feels, sounds amazing. 
sounds not very real. The incarnation of Jesus Christ insists that there is a profound goodness in the physical world, friends. That's one of the reasons that we're here now in person. A virtual world created by businesses for the benefit of more revenue might do that. It might might make some money, some people some money, probably a few dollars, but it will only lead to more isolation and more loneliness, as if we need any help in that department. God created the world, God created us, and he called it good. He didn't create a virtual world and call it neat. We're on the heels of Christmas Day. We're anticipating a new calendar year, and one of the ways to reflect, one of the ways to anticipate is to remember the implications of the Incarnation. Christ came to be with us. That means, it at least means, that every person matters, that your shame can be covered and your physical presence matters. And this is Matthew 1. And and all the way at the end of the book, Matthew 28, this is what Jesus says. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God came to be with us. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather here this morning, we're reminded of how familiar we are with the Christmas story. We're reminded of our uh, effectiveness and our utilitarianism to just float through the day, not seeing people that matter to you or that matter to us. And so, Lord, as we're on the heels of Christmas, would you give us eyes to see every image bearer of God that we encounter, that we would see every person, that we would not treat people as commodities? Would you help us to receive the honor and the dignity that you want to give us in place of our shame? I pray for my friends here today who find themselves maybe even under the pile of shame today. Would you liberate them? Would you give them great honor and dignity this morning? Would they go out having received new garments of honor? And God, would you remind us as we close out another year and anticipate a new one, would you remind us that our physical presence matters in an advanced technological world we realize and we receive your invitation to just show up. Would you give us what we need as we head into a new year? And would you remind us of our implications because of you coming to be with us? We pray this in your name. Amen.